Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and the surrounding communities. I'm Lois Keel, a strong supporter of unions. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all of the great programming and work possible. Hi, I'm Mike Bernhard, a member of the IWW and a retired member of the AFT and the IBEW. Today we report on the Madison location on the Madison locations in the nationwide Starbucks strike, learn about a lawsuit over school vouchers, get an update on the attacks in Gaza and labor's response and much much more. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Unionized Starbucks stores across the country, including the Madison area, were on strike yesterday. Greg Gabaski has more. If we don't get it, shut it down! Let's go, Madison! Yesterday, the two unionized Starbucks stores in Madison, one on State Street near the UW campus and the other on Main Street in Capitol Square, went on a one-day unfair labor practice strike, citing systematic understaffing and a continuing Starbucks management reluctance to negotiate a first contract. The two Madison stores joined a nationwide call for the over 360 unionized Starbucks stores in 41 states to strike on Red Cup Day, an annual promotion for the coffee corporate giant that also, according to workers who spoke yesterday, had significant pressure to barista staff. Joanna Weir, a shift supervisor at the unionized Capitol Square Starbucks store and a member of that store's organizing committee, spoke by phone yesterday to Labor Radio. So basically we're out here on the picket line. We've closed the stores. Red Cup Day is historically one of the most busy days for Starbucks' profit. We want to let them know that until we get that contract, until we get fair wages, we are going to be doing things. We are going to be shutting it down. We are going to be affecting them in their profits. Um, you know, we're out here and there's a lot of support from the community. We saw the mayor come out for a bit. You know, we see school board members, local reps. The community has been a great support. Evan McKenzie, a worker and unionizer at the Capitol Square store, spoke at a midday rally at the Struck State Street store yesterday. And that's the URP that we're striking over today. It's about unfair working conditions, understaffing, specifically during promotional days. You guys might have heard of the BOGO days, Thursdays they call them. Normally in the past, they would provide additional staffing during those days where we'd see sometimes 100% increases in the numbers of drinks we had to make. Well, not the case this year. This year, Starbucks has refused to bargain over their change to that employment practice and has given us completely inadequate staffing and has made us feel completely destroyed after the end of work. I think all of us can agree with that. Abby Martin, a former Starbucks barista who worked at Starbucks for three years, including over a year at the State Street store, addressed potential Starbucks customers who passed on State Street. We've been fighting for things to be better, not just for us, but for you, the customers, and Starbucks has refused to listen. The biggest issue Starbucks faces on a national level is understaffing. A safely staffed Starbucks is almost unheard of these days, and workers have brought these complaints to Starbucks many, many times. The Red Cup Day strike was not the only action yesterday. Labor supporters and community members were encouraged to go to non-unionized Starbucks stores in the area and leaflet workers and customers on how to contact Workers United, the Starbucks union. 
Issy Bielek, an organizer for the South Central Federation of Labor, or SCUFFLE, explained the idea behind this community car caravan. The Starbucks Workers United rank-and-file workers' ask for their allies was to have us flyer non-union shops. So they're going to be striking outside of their shops, and then they want us to go to non-union shops, inform the public about what's going on, and then also inform the workers that might not be in a union yet that they have the opportunity to join one, and now is the best time for them to get involved. Victoria Gutierrez, a Madison nurse and a member of SEIU Wisconsin, explained why she joined yesterday's caravan. I'm here today to support my brothers and sisters in Starbucks who have been on a struggle for a contract and let Starbucks know that the community is behind these workers who are in struggle and give full solidarity to workers who have a union shop as well as those that don't and are in the process maybe, hopefully with today, getting one. In all, leafleters from the community went to eight non-unionized Starbucks stores in Madison yesterday afternoon, passing out cards with an electronic QR code that led to the Workers United website. Back at the State Street rally, Evan McKenzie left the crowd with this. But here's the thing. We know we're going to win. Madison is a union town, and they're messing with the wrong workers. That was Evan McKenzie, a Starbucks worker and a member of Workers United, speaking yesterday outside of the Madison State Street Starbucks, which along with the Capitol Square Starbucks store, were on strike yesterday during the Coffee Giant's Red Cup promotion. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jaboski. UW Parkside, the smallest four-year UW campus in Wisconsin, announced furloughs and job cuts of up to 10% of the staff with promises of more to come in the years ahead. This is after months of announcement of cuts and closures throughout the UW system. Labor Radio spoke with Doug Sinkson, a UW Parkside Associate Professor of Art and Design History and founding member of Organizing to Protect Education Worker Center. UW Parkside is a regional comprehensive university in the UW system. We are located in Kenosha County. We have currently around 3,000 students, which is significantly below our historical norm, which was closer to 4,000. All of U.S. higher ed is facing a demographic decline. There's just fewer college-age students now than there were 10 or 20 years ago. This is fueling a crisis throughout higher ed and essentially a contraction. What population does UW Parkside serve? The bulk of our students come from the local area. We have the highest number of students in the entire UW system who are first-generation students, Pell-eligible students, which is an indicator of low family income, and also minority students. What happened recently with the announcement of the cuts? We were told pretty unexpectedly in August that we were facing a four to $5 million budget deficit. And we had been told over the past year that we were in good financial condition. There is a consensus, including among many administrators, that this is a situation that they knew was coming and failed to plan for or effectively communicate. This is compounded by the fact that we currently have an interim chancellor. The initial announcement to staff was that there would be a $5 million budget deficit. This was followed up quickly by an announcement that there were going to be furloughs, pay reductions, and mandatory leave time. 
which was then followed by an announcement that they would effectively have 50 less positions. Which is about 10% of the staff. Singson says that the impact of these cuts have meant more work for faculty with less support. Everyone is doing more work than they did a decade ago, which creates a lot of stress. There's a lot of turnover. And the quality of the work suffers because you don't have as much time to do it. The impacts on students, I would say number one, is that we aren't able to offer all the classes that students need to complete their degrees. Singson said that other impacts include less library hours, less support staff, more time and money to complete a degree due to less classes being offered, This is happening across the board. It's particularly noticeable in Wisconsin because the University of Wisconsin system used to be one of the strongest in the country, and it's now one of the most poorly funded in the country. It's neoliberalism. It's happening because of an ideological attack on public services. It's the higher ed equivalent of funding charter schools and vouchers for the K-12 system. It is a political lack of commitment to education and the public sphere and the public good. What can listeners do? The state of Wisconsin completely has the ability to solve this problem. Every year for the past decade, the state of Wisconsin has been running a budget surplus. The legislature refuses to do anything with that money. So legislators need to hear that this is unacceptable and that those funds paid for by taxpayers should be used for what they're intended to, which is to benefit the state of Wisconsin. That was Doug Simpson. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Madison Labor Radio. Ask Me Local 6000 made gains and is satisfied with the new Madison operating budget. On Tuesday evening, the Madison City Council approved the $405.3 million operating budget with little dissension. The Camp Times noted that it was the first time in 18 years that the City Council approved both the capital budget and the operating budget in one night, adjourning just before midnight. The operating budget covers wages, the day-to-day functioning of city departments, as well as operations like snow removal. The American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Workers, Local 6000, represents the 1,100 city workers, including librarians, covered by the budget. Labor Radio spoke with Walt Jackson, Vice President of Local 6000, and asked him to give us AFSME's assessment of the operating budget. Or as it relates to us and our members, this is the first budget under this mayor where, wage, where wages, a wage increase, 
has not been disputed and has simply been decided properly in what we would call the meet and confer process, which is the old bargaining, collective bargaining process that we engage in. And this is the first time in during her administrations that we were able to secure the wage increase to bring us to parity with the collective bargaining units of police, fire, and metro. The achievement of parity has been a long-time goal of AFSCME, and in VP Jackson's view, it showed that the system of meet and confer could work. Once a wage agreement is in the mayor's operating budget, it is not usually discussed, but passes part of the overall package, and that is what happened Tuesday night. Labor Radio asked if AFSCME believed they had been treated fairly by the city, and that this year's process could be a model for the future. Oh, yes. I this very, very fairly... This is how the how the process should work. So from going forward here, I'm, I'm hoping that the mayor and the administration and alders will look back at this year and realize that any future wage wage increases that would have to bring us to parity to the collective bargaining units um, agree, contract agreements, we can look back at this year and we can say this is how it should be done and let's do it this way. We asked if AFSCME had any other priorities as regards the operating budget. We we don't deal into the social justice type of issues per se regarding that might be in the budget. In the past, we haven't felt the need to inject ourselves into those monetary discussions because really our, our major focus should be on providing the wages for our members. Labor Radio asked Jackson to describe the overall relations with the mayor. Um, so I would say we have I would say we have a very good working relationship currently. The collective bargaining relationship is defined by Act 10, which limits the scope of bargaining as well as the ability of unions to collect dues and also requires yearly certifications. The system in place now is a meet and confer arrangement. We asked Jackson if the system allows AFSCME to adequately represent its membership. Adequately, yes. Is it ideal? No. Would I like it? Would I like the old collective bargaining rules back where we could actually bargain for more things and more benefits for our people? You betcha. But for wage for wage parity or wage issues that bring us back to parity regarding the other collective bargaining units, it, it's a good process. It's a good tool. I'm glad we're utilizing it to its effectiveness now and it's working the way that it should work. But in expressing that satisfaction, he also noted that meet and confer was not a substitute for collective bargaining, and that AFSCME is looking forward to the day when they will challenge Act 10. That was Walt Jackson, Vice President of AFSCME Local 6000, commenting on the city budget. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. Charles Opoff, a 12-year member of the Oregon School Board, Talk to Labor Radio reporter Keith Steffen about a landmark lawsuit seeking to, in, to end taxpayer vouchers for private and religious schools in Wisconsin. Uphoff is a plaintiff in this lawsuit. You are a plaintiff in the Underwood versus Voss lawsuit. Can you briefly explain it? Basically, a challenge is being brought before the Wisconsin Supreme Court asking them to take a look at the current system for providing state aid to public and voucher schools. I've actually put together a spreadsheet showing the level of state funding for public schools versus what's guaranteed for private voucher schools for every school district in the state. And it's been alarming because the growing disparity between what's funding available for the public schools and what's guaranteed for private voucher schools has gotten to the 
point where it's absurd. There are some districts in Wisconsin where the difference between the funding for a public school district and what's guaranteed for a private voucher school for a K-8 student is in excess of $7,000 per student. For the Madison Public School District, the difference is $6,104 per K-8 student. That's the difference between what the state aid provides the Madison Public Schools versus what's guaranteed for a private voucher school student. For a high school student, the difference for the Madison School District is $8,598 more for a private voucher school student than is provided in the Madison Public Schools. What proportion of voucher schools are religious schools? About 75% of the people in the voucher schools never went to a public school, which means there's a significant percentage, more than half, are likely to have been students enrolled in parochial or religious schools. And there's been extensive lobbying to increase the funding for private and parochial voucher schools. And the thing that I would think would be of concern to any parent with children enrolled in a public school is that the state aid formula seems to say that they are much less worthy of support than students who are going to a private voucher school where that state aid funding is guaranteed. And what are the constitutional issues with using public funding for religious education? There's a clear statement in the Wisconsin Constitution that prohibits using funding for religious instruction. The way they've sort of gotten around it is they have said that there's no religious component to their instruction. But I think that's got to be questionable. How do you see the course of this lawsuit playing out? The lawsuit was brought by Kirk Bankstead with Monaco Brewing and by Julie Underwood, who's a former head of the Department of Education at UW-Madison. Basically, for me, I think the issues are really even more a question of fairness than the constitutional issues. The other thing that's really a concern is for voucher schools, the total funding for state aid for education takes money for private voucher schools off the top, and what's left over is available for distribution to public schools based on the formula that's supposed to take into account the property wealth of the district. As an example, Bayfield, which is in far northern Wisconsin, has less than half the state's median household income, and yet they receive $5,790 less per K-8 student than is guaranteed for a private voucher school student. I, I don't see how that makes any sense. The fact that the funding for voucher schools comes off the top of the state budget for education means that every school district in the state is paying for voucher students, even if they don't have voucher students in their district. Absolutely. Every school district, whether they have a voucher school in their district or not, is paying for it. Because that money for the voucher schools comes right off the top, and it's what's left over that's available for the public schools. I think it's a question of fairness. This is a problem that continues to grow. It's uh, been creeping up. The income gap in terms of eligibility has been increasingly rising. I would think that this would be a message that people should be sending to their legislators. This needs to be fixed. And the courts hopefully will take us in that direction. That was Labor Radio, Steith, <clears throat> excuse me, Keith Steffen, talking to Charles Uphoff. For more information on state funding for select schools, contact Charles Uphoff. His number is 608-213-6063. Um, the continuing Israeli assault on the Gaza Strip brought people out today to protest a Wisconsin defense contractor. It's also causing pressure within the AFL-CIO. Greg Dabowski reports. 
Early this morning, 50 protesters braved the wind and cold and gathered at Madison's Edgewater Hotel on the shores of Lake Mendota, chanting and holding signs in support of Palestinians and demanding an end to the continuing Israeli assault on the Gaza Strip, specifically protesting the appearance of John Pfeiffer, the CEO of Wisconsin's Oshkosh Corporation, at a special breakfast event. A segment of Oshkosh Corporation, Oshkosh Defense, has a number of contracts with the Israeli military, most recently producing the hulls of the Itan Armored Personnel Carrier, an eight-wheeled tank-carrier combination described this year by the journal Army Technology as an advanced protected combat vehicle with high mobility and firepower capabilities. According to a story this week in Business Insider, the ITAN APCs are being used in the current assault in Gaza. Pfeiffer was appearing as a part of a quarterly breakfast series held under the name of the Cap Times, the Cap Times Power Hour, described as being targeted for those who run a business or aspire to, or those interested in understanding how major CEOs think. Michelle Ball once worked at Journey Mental Health, where she was one of the workers who helped organize the AFSME local there. Ball explained why she was protesting this morning. Here's the thing. It's an important issue for every single person in this world right now. I have never seen in my lifetime, I'm almost 50, a clear-cut genocide like this without anybody, anyone in power in this country speaking out. There are a couple politicians who have, but the <clears throat> overall consensus is that the United States supports Israel 100%. And for working people, our tax dollars are going to this genocide. Let's have a ceasefire right now and stop this siege. This has been going on for way too long in our name. Mark Rosenthal, a retired emergency room nurse of 30 years, who was a longtime member of SEIU, said why he was there. I feel like I have an obligation to be here to say no more, to demand a ceasefire, to say corporations like this that are making money uh, by murdering civilians, by murdering children, by, by being part of a U.S. military machine that is absolutely responsible along with the Israelis for a genocidal campaign that I'm horrified by and I'm here to say no more. Workers at the Oshkosh Defense Plant in Oshkosh are represented by UAW Local 578. Harry Richardson, a member of ASME Local 171, was at today's protest and spoke later by phone to Labor Radio and said that good jobs for civilian production should be a goal of the labor movement. I came out today to support the rights of the Palestinian workers and we support their calls for justice in Palestine, and we're concerned about Oshkosh trucks and their military equipment that they're selling. We support the needs of those workers as well. We support full employment, and people should be retrained to do civilian tasks. It was Harry Richardson of AFSME Local 171. Last week, Labor Radio reported that Richardson's local unanimously passed a resolution calling for a ceasefire and massive humanitarian aid and suspension of U.S. military aid to Israel for its Gaza operations, among other demands. As it so happens, Oshkosh Defense did recently get a significant civilian contract, winning a bid to provide new trucks to the United States Postal Service. However, they also announced that these jobs wouldn't be in Oshkosh, but would instead be sent to a new plant in Spartanburg, South Carolina, that, according to an Oshkosh 
Corporation spokesperson who spoke to Labor Radio is scheduled to open in summer 2024. This is despite a still pending joint federal lawsuit filed last year by the UAW and the National Resources Defense Council claiming failure by USPS to comply with the National Environmental Policy Act. Meanwhile, Oshkosh's production of war machines for Israel continues. WORT News had planned to report on what Oshkosh CEO Pfeiffer had to say at today's breakfast in Madison, but a WRT reporter with a paid ticket was refused entrance to the breakfast by the event organizers. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. After the death of one of its employees in a May 2023 accident, U.S. Department of Labor cited a Prairie du Chien factory for failing to uphold a safe workplace. Labor Radio has the story. One of the world's best-known manufacturing companies could have prevented an employee at a southwestern Wisconsin manufacturing plant from suffering fatal injuries after becoming caught in a machine's rotating rollers in May 2023 by following federal workplace safety regulations. The U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration began an investigation after the 3M company reported the death at its Prairie du Chien facility. OSHA inspectors learned that the employee was helping to set up a plastic extrusion line when they became caught. The company operates 40 production plants with about 34,000 employees in the U.S., including about 500 at the Prairie du Chien facility. The agency determined the 3M company violated federal regulations for the control of hazardous energy during setup, servicing, and operation of the machine. The incident followed the company's assessment of equipment at its U.S. and Canadian plants in May 2022, after a fatality at a 3M facility in Alexandria, Minnesota, in February of 2022. The investigation also determined the 3M plant allowed workers to circumvent machine guarding to cut and remove wrapped fibers from rotating powered rollers and to remove fibers from the floor, which exposed them to caught-in hazards. OSHA cited the company for two willful safety violations and assessed over $300,000 in penalties. OSHA Regional Administrator Bill Donovan in Chicago explained in a public statement, quote, The tragedy of another employee's death in Wisconsin is compounded by the fact that the 3M company completed a corporate-wide review and determined powered rollers were hazards in need of safety improvements. The company must address these hazards immediately to protect employees from serious injuries or worse. This story was sourced from a statement posted by the U.S. Department of Labor. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. The Wisconsin Fair Maps Coalition is holding a rally next Tuesday, November 21st at 9 a.m. at the state capitol in Madison to advocate for fair legislative maps in our state. On that same day, the Wisconsin State Supreme Court will hear oral arguments challenging the constitutionality of the current maps, often referred to as the most gerrymandered in the country. Wisconsin I will live stream the oral arguments proceedings. A room in the state capitol building has been reserved where supporters may gather to view the proceedings following the rally. Sister Fair Maps rallies around the state will take place at noon in, Ma- in uh, Milwaukee, Green Bay, and Eau Claire. For information and to register for any of the rallies, go to the Wisconsin Fair Maps Coalition website at F-A-I-R-M-A-P-S-W-I dot com. That's fairmapswi.com.
for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Lois Keel. Thanks to the editor, Frank Emsbach, assistant Robin G., reporters Greg Jabosky, Sean Hagerup, Anna Hamm, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, and the damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Stevens, our reader coordinator, web poster Alice Herman, and all our readers, and the members of the IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Mike Bernhard with the IBEW, the AFT, and the IWW. We also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and the Professor Bill Clark.